Okay. Good morning. Good to have everyone here. So I just want to reiterate what uh, Luke had said in terms of just uh, take a little bit of time and drop Frank a note. Um, certainly, you know, when I go and prepare a lesson, it reminds me of just how much work it is. But again, that is only a small part of what Frank does each and every day uh, for our body. So uh, drop him a little note. It, I, I know it would mean a lot to him. So um, Penny put me onto this book, uh, Bread and Wine, by Shauna Nyquist. <clears throat> it's kind of a little cookbook, but she's also a, a Christian writer. And um, there's a little passage in here that uh, I felt like kind of really provided a, a good introduction to, to where we're going today in this lesson. It's no accident that when a loved one dies, the family is deluged with food. The impulse to feed is innate. Food is a language of care, the thing we do when traditional language fails us, when we don't know what to say, when there are no words to say. And food is what we offer in celebration, at weddings, at anniversaries, at happy events of every kind. It's a thing that connects us, that bears our tradition, our sense of home and family, our deepest memories, and on a practical level, our ability to live and breathe each day. Food matters. At the very beginning, and all through the Bible, all through the stories about God and his people, there are stories about food, about all of life changing with the bite of an apple, about trading an inheritance for a bowl of stew, about waking up to find the land littered with bread, God's way of caring for his people, about a wedding where water turned to wine, Jesus' first miracle, about the very first Last Supper, the humble bread and wine becoming for all time indelibly linked to the very body of Christ, a center point for thousands of years of tradition and belief. It matters. It mattered then, it matters now, possibly even more so because it's the way of reclaiming some of the things that we have lost along the way. So I imagine you'd all you know, agree that food is a way we communicate with each other. When, when we're hurting, when we have needs, we communicate our, our concern for them. When there's a death, we, you know, communicate our, our, our concern and our, our, our feeling of loss with them through food. We also connect over food, right? Every time we get together with friends and family, it's almost always over food or drink. And so it's, it's central to the way we operate as humans, right? And so it's no surprise then that the Bible, too, food is, is central to so much of what we see going on in the Bible. In fact, I think it's a, a one of God's love languages, right? You see all these miracles that revolve around food and how God meets basic needs of, of food for, pure, for people. But also, food, so often God uses it to serve as a symbol for deep uh, spiritual uh, 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 meaning, right? Like the communion. And so, you know... I had never really put this together, right? I never really thought exactly about how, you know, food, you know, throughout the Bible, such an important theme throughout the Bible, uh, but it is. And so kind of with that backdrop, what I'd like to do is dig a little deeper in one specific instance, which you probably have already figured out. It's the, the manna from heaven. And so in this, though, what I'd like you to get uh, today is a couple of things to go away with. The first has to do with just realizing how significant of a miracle this was. And really, 
the, the whole purpose behind this miracle was, again, to train up the people, to help them to understand that he was indeed the Lord their God. And that in knowing God that way, it doesn't always require them to understand his ways, to, to realize God does things that are beyond our kind of human imagination and, and, and perception. The other thing is that with this blessing of food came uh, the responsibility of following some of God's commands. God gave commands, again, to test, to train up the people. Again, with the whole goal of helping them to uh, have a true understanding and appreciation of God as God as their sustainer and deliverer. And this is both in a spiritual and a physical sense, and we'll get into that a little later. So, as we, uh, before we get into this, will you pray with me? Dear Lord in heaven, uh, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for everybody here, Lord, and for this opportunity to come and worship you together, Lord. There's nothing that uh, we'd rather be doing right now, Lord. We just thank you for this passage, Lord. Thank you for, um, Lord, uh, your, your, your miracles and, Lord, all that you've done uh, to bring us to this point, Lord. And uh, we just pray that you would make uh, these scriptures come alive to us, Lord, and to make application in our lives today, Lord. Go with us. Again, we thank you for this, your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 16, and we'll kick off there with the first 15 verses. Exodus 16. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month of the departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that had we died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and for the people to go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And it will come to pass, it will come about on the sixth day when, the, uh, when they prepare what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumbling against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Shall say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. And it came about, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the, crowd, the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about... At evening, the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, 
What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. So does this passage remind you of anything at all? Anything kind of familiar from the last few weeks, like just last week? You might remember that was um, actually that last week was following on the heels of uh, uh, the great miracle God performed in, in leading the Israelites through the Red Sea and then closed the Red Sea and closed, totally destroyed all the armies of Pharaoh to, to, to save them, right? And they, they celebrated greatly for a few days and then what? It was time for them to move on into the desert and they started into the desert and they made it, what? Three whole days and then what started happening? They started getting thirsty and they started grumbling against God. And they grumbled against God, but fortunately, Moses called out to God, and, you know, said, God, help us. And, of course, God was there and helped the people. Had him throw a, a, a tree into this brackish lake, a salty lake, and it made it, 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 it fresh so the people could drink it. And so God heard their need and, and fulfilled it. And you might remember in that last passage the way Frank handled it, the way he kind of dissected that and... Uh, he, he broke it down into a three-act movement. The first act being testing by God. The second was the grumbling of the people. And then the third was the grace and glory that God showed the people. And so because we see this repetition in the Bible, you know, we saw this at the very end of chapter 15. Now we see the same thing happening in the early part of chapter 16. I think there's something there that... It's in this repetition we need to understand. So I'm going to kind of break this down again using Frank's model of this uh, kind of three-part uh, movement. And so first part is the testing, right? And so how is God testing his people in this particular case? Whereas it was with water, now we see it with food. And here they leave Elam. And if you don't remember where Elam was, if you look at that very last verse in chapter 15, it was an oasis. Sounds like a really nice place. A bunch of springs, a bunch of palm trees, a really nice place. But then God took them out, started their way to where? Sinai, which is where God would meet the people face to face. They would get the, the, the Ten Commandments, the law. But in between sat the, the wilderness of sin. And that's a pretty ominous sounding place, right? It's kind of what I thought. But you know, it has nothing to do with sin. There, I met it's probably Zen, Z-I-N, instead of sin, uh, more accurately uh, uh, translated. But still the point is it's a wilderness, right? And uh, it connotates, you know, that it, it's very dry. There's, there's no plants, you know, probably hardly a blade of grass. It's hot. You know, they can't get out of the sun. It is not a hospitable place for two million people to be moving through the land, right? So it's, it's exactly where you don't want to be. The other thing to note here is it's 30 days into the trip, right? It's uh, 27 days after the last grumbling, right? And here we see them starting to grumble yet again over food. But it kind of makes sense, 30 days in. Remember, you know, they had to leave Egypt kind of quickly. And, you know, there's only so much they can carry. So it makes sense that about 30 days into their journey, they're starting to run out of food that they carried out of Egypt. And they're kind of looking around and saying, "Ooh, you know, we're 30 days into the desert and where's the food going to come from? Now, they probably aren't starving at this point because they, you know, had carried large sets of livestock in with them. So they have animals to slaughter and stuff with them. 
but it's probably the fact that, you know, our stores of what we brought up from Egypt are gone. We're in a bad place. There's no food around. What are we going to do? We're, we're, we're starting to get concerned. And so uh, this is exactly God's plan, right? God's plan was to test them. And we know this, as, as Frank pointed out last week uh, from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He tells us explicitly, And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did any of your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So what is the point here? What is God, why is God testing? Well, testing is not tempting. He's testing. As Frank pointed out, he's training or he's discipling or uh, disciplining his children. Uh, as we see in Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, what good father doesn't discipline his children? And that's what we see God doing here. He's trying to train them. And what's he trying to teach them? Bottom line, to know him, to know that he is the Lord, their sustainer. Understand that he's been their deliverer, now he's their sustainer. And that's what he's trying to get across now. And so, is God uh, testing you in any way? Is he disciplining you? Well, if you were his children, he is disciplining you. What ways are he disciplining? Is it... Maybe it's something very significant like, you know, food insecurity. Maybe it's, a, you know, a, a relationship that's really going bad. Or maybe it's your job or maybe it's your health. Or, you know, it could be all kinds of other things that maybe don't, aren't that extreme but still are very hard and, and, and you're going through them. All kind, te God's testing us and disciplining us in all kinds of ways. How is he working on you today and what is he trying to teach you? So how did they do with their test from God? Well, we know they failed the test, right? And this is, what, the fourth or fifth time in a row that they failed. And how do we know they failed? They grumbled. So that brings us kind of to our second movement, right? The grumbling. And um, so one might argue, though, this is kind of like, you know, the Snickers uh, paradigm, right? You remember the, the commercials where, you know, you have an actor, he's acting really stupid, you know, he's being bratty, really mean to everybody around him, and then they hand him a Snickers, and he takes a bite, and he changes into a different person altogether, right? You're not yourself when you're hungry. That's not what's going on here. This is, like I say, they're probably not, I mean, certainly not starving at this point, but they're concerned, and basically, this is really a reflection of the heart, right? And we know that because this is what, number four or five, uh, you know, We've already seen the ten plagues, yet, you know, we didn't believe God could get us out of Egypt. We saw the, you know, the, the Egyptian soldiers bearing down on us, and God swallowed them up in, in, in the Red Sea and saved us. He saved us with water, you know, when, when we were in the desert. Can he save us with food? It's, you know, it's, it's this condition of their heart that it, it's just that they won't trust God. And... The condition of their heart, then, is where we see this, this grumbling is, is, a, is a manifestation of that condition of their heart. And when I look through this, I see three characteristics to their grumbling, which uh, 
I also see her kind of common to me when I'm grumbling. Not that I grumble a lot or anything, of course. No, I'm, really, I'm really bad about grumbling, and I see that these three characteristics are characteristics that are, are true to the way I grumble and this way of catching ourselves. First thing I see in their grumbling is that it, they use very toxic, sens sensational language, right? You've brought us out into the desert to die. I mean, we know that. I mean, nobody would do that for first. And then second, God had taken you, you know, out of the you know, slavery of the Egyptians. He had saved you from their, you know, uh, their armies. You know, God's not going to lead you out here to die. You know better than that. They also say, well, we sat by pots of meat and ate bread in Egypt. It was so much better in Egypt than now. Who are they fooling? They're not fooling anyone. They know better than that. It was awful in Egypt, and the food probably wasn't that good. Usually slaves are not fed that well, so nobody believes that. So why would they say these kinds of things? Why do I say these kinds of things? It, they want to sensationalize things. It's like the news, right? We've got to make everything sensational or nobody will pay attention to me. I want people to pay attention to me. I make things sound worse than they really are, you know, you know, kind of borderline on, on that, sensationalizing. And so, have you seen that in yourself? Do you grumble? Do you uh, sensationalize things? The other characteristic I see here is who was grumbling? Verse 2 tells us, the whole congregation. When I read that, I thought, I don't know if I believe that. I mean, the whole congregation, everybody was grumbling? You know, we as Americans, we don't agree on anything, even... Within this church, we don't agree on everything, right? How can you get everybody to agree to grumble? Well, I think part of it is, is that grumbling is contagious. It's kind of a cancer, right? So what happens when I grumble to somebody? Usually they grumble along with me. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I hate that too. I, I can't believe they're doing that, right? And that's... So you're kind of fanning the flame, and it, it gets contagious. And one person starts grumbling to another, and then they all start grumbling, and they, next thing you know, everybody's grumbling. And I, I believe that's what's happening here. We're all grumbling together. The third characteristic, and this is probably the most important, is the misdirected nature of their grumbling. Who were they grumbling at? Or against, actually, it says. In verse 2, Aaron and Moses. And I think this is probably just out of convenience. They're the ones around. They'd rather think that they're, you know, blaming Aaron and Moses rather than God. But who led them out into the desert? It wasn't Moses and Aaron. It was the cloud, right? They're following the cloud. They know that, you know, God is the one that has led them where they're at. So, but... They're misdirected, right? They're blaming the wrong person. And how often is this the case? Well, let me give you a little example. I mean, when I was putting this lesson together, I was convicted in my heart. I, I gripe a lot. I, I grumble uh, quite a bit, unfortunately. And one very recent instance uh, had to do with my former work. I, I worked for 32 years for Sandia National Labs. It treated me really well. Had a good run for 32 years there. You know, I worked with great people, had good projects I was on. I had fun 
you know, I went to some really interesting places. But the last couple of years of my employment, I found it increasingly difficult to bring in new projects and get, you know, the, the money that I needed to keep working and doing the things that I wanted to. And I just couldn't figure out what was going on. Why am I having such a good, uh, difficult time when, you know, I'm at the you know, end of my career. I should be at the very top, right? And uh, so what did I do? I started complaining, of course, right? Complaining to my wife, you know, friends, colleagues, anyone who would listen to me, right? And kind of using that uh, sensational language. Nobody at Sandia cares anything about me. They're all against me, you know. They, you know, they could care less, you know, about the work I do. They don't value me. Well, that that wasn't true at all, of course. I mean, 32 years, they they cared a lot, and had shown that. And what was I doing? I was complaining to anyone I could find, right? And what I found is particularly with my colleagues at Sandia, usually when I was complaining, they say, yeah, you know, it's just, it's not the same as it used to be. And I, yeah, I don't like that either. I don't like this. And even people who were not at Sandia, I'd be griping to them and they'd say, yeah, you know, I've heard all kinds of people saying that, you know, and I, yeah, I've heard that. So I was fanning the flame, you know, and then, who was I pointing the finger at? Who was I blaming? Well, I was not blaming me for sure. It wasn't my fault. It was my managers. It was their fault. And I, so I started, you know, I was blaming, you know, they, they're not doing their job, making it, you know, so I can go out and, you know, do my job well. And, you know, it's, it's, it's their fault. And then finally I feel this little kind of tap on my shoulder and God finally said, hey, I'm doing this. It's me. What I want is you to retire. I want you to move on. I, mean, I don't want you to quit working, but I want you to do some other things. And I know this is not, wasn't in your plan yet, but it's my plan for you now. And so I was, you know, funneling my, my grumbling against the wrong person. It was God trying to get my attention. How else was he going to get me to quit? was his only way. Well, I guess he could have thrown me out, but at least he was gracious enough to kind of, you know, instead of fire me. So um, it's, it's, it's insidious, right? It, it, we, I grumble about everything, and so you got to be careful, and particularly that so much of that grumbling is really against God. It's not the other things. God's trying to get your attention. He's putting you through things to grow you and to train you. And another important part about this why or complaining, whoop, um, is that um, do you like to listen to your children whine? Nobody likes that, right? Do you, maybe you've coached uh, little league teams or something and you, your, your athletes were complaining to you, do you like that? No. Or if you're a supervisor or led projects at work, do you like it when, you know, those working with you are complaining to you? Nobody likes that, right? Nobody even likes to listen to grumbling. Um, and did you notice how many times in those 15 verses we read the word grumbling? Eight times. I got tired of reading that word. In fact, I don't like that word, right? And, I mean, it kind of, you know, put an edge on me. And, you know, when things are repeated in the Bible, it's for a reason. God's trying to get your attention. And what do you think God's trying to communicate by that word grumbling so many times in such a short set of passage. He's trying to say, I don't like it. I don't like to hear your grumbling. 
So nobody likes it. Why do we do it? Um, so why do we do it? Why do we grumble? It doesn't accomplish anything. Nobody wants to hear it. Yet we do. So what was the outcome of all this complaining and grumbling? Well, that's our third movement, right? This time we see the grace and glory of God uh, that pours out. How is that grace, how do we realize that grace here? Well, first we see God's grace poured out by him feeding the people, right? Even though they've grumbled or they've failed the test, now what, three, four times, five times in a row, yet he still feeds them, right? The other way he shows his grace to his people is that he continues to test them. He continues to train them. He, as hard-headed as they are, he's still trying to convey to them is that you can trust me. I am Lord, the God. I am your sustainer, and you can trust me for that. And we see this over and over. Verse 6, you will know the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Verse 12, you will know that I am the Lord, your God. And then how many times, I met every lesson that we've had so far on Exodus, this has been a central theme, that you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That has appeared in every lesson because it is the central theme of, of Exodus going through here, that God is trying to train up his people, make, help them to understand who he is and that he can be their deliverer and their sustainer. But God also, uh, we see his glory here. And Moses says, in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. How is this glory shown? Well, um, you know, I never really appreciated the manna, right? I mean, I never thought of this as one of God's big uh, miracles. But I think after reading through this, I think this is one of, I mean, they're right up there. I mean, I, I, how can you rate miracles? But this is a really big miracle. And, think, and it's not just a one-off one miracle. He does it every day or six out of seven days for 40 years. He sustains the people in the desert this way all the time. So I met maybe to kind of realize this, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. And so you're out in the desert. Think about yourself being out somewhere in the desert where, you know, it, it's very dry, hot. There's nothing there. You're not going to go over the next hill and all of a sudden you're going to find these huge lush fields and deer and everything to harvest and eat, right? Where's this food going to come from? And in, let me put it in physical terms. So under today's capabilities with, you know, green agriculture and everything, to feed roughly 2 million people, it would take 1,500 square miles of uh, cropland and grazing land to do that. 1,500 square miles. That's larger than Bernalillo County. That's a lot of land, all of it, every bit of it fully cultivated. That's what it would take to feed them. They're not going to happen up on that somewhere, right? Let me put it in another perspective. If I was going to give them a hamburger, everybody a hamburger three times a day, I'd need 4,500 McDonald's restaurants. That's a lot, right? I mean, you can, so that kind of tells you kind of the scale of what's going on here. And so, but the problem is, well, what are we doing? I'm putting that in human terms. I'm thinking of it through my, I'm, I'm looking at it through my human lens. And that's a big problem. 
let's now, you know, who, who are we talking about, though? Here, God, for a minute, stop and think about what he's just done. 30 days ago, he solved the freshwater problem, right? I mean, most of you may not fully realize this, but, you know, he threw a, a tree in the water, in this salty water. It didn't take any energy. It didn't take any money. And he didn't end up with any salt concentrates when it was all said and done. He just got fresh water out of it. As a hydrologist, I understand this. If I could do this, we're putting millions and millions of dollars into this problem, and we can't do it. I mean, this level is not even on, on you know, our hopes, right? If I could do this, this is Einsteinian level stuff. I mean, this is really big. But he doesn't stop there, right? 27 days later, what does he do? He solves world hunger, right? And I mean, stop. I, we laugh a little bit about it, but think about this manna, this wonder food, right? Is basically what we're talking about here. A cupful, a cupful of manna serves all of our caloric needs, all of our nutritional needs for a person for a day. And not only that, I don't have to worry about whether I'm vegan or vegetarian or I have food allergies or anything. It doesn't matter. The food works for me, for everybody. And then it's quickly distributed. Somehow in the dew, it, 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 it's there, right? And then if I don't eat all of it, I don't even have to worry about the food waste. It just dissolves, as we'll see. So, I mean, it's a perfect food. And then the cool thing, I was reading you know, through some of the commentaries, and I don't know whether this is true or anything, but they say, some of the old Jewish traditions suggest that the taste of the food was such that it would be different depending on kind of what you wanted to think about, you know, that it, it had this fluid taste that was good to everybody. And, I mean, to eat it for 40 years, it had, you know, there had to be something about it, right? So, I mean, this was an amazing food, however you cut it. And so... The point, though, in all of this is that God goes outside the realm of human thinking and understanding to sustain his people. And what are, what's the people's reaction? Well, what is this, right? What is this? Because they did not know what the manna was. <coughs> and uh, do you know what? So what did they call it? They called it manna. Do you know what manna means? What is it? Right. What is this? And so while God calls it bread from heaven, the people called it, what is this, right? Kind of weird. But the interesting thing here, I, I believe, is that, again, uh, he's playing on some words, some repetition of words. In this case, the word no. And notice how he uses the word no to uh, express that they did not know what the manna was. In the same way, God, what's God been trying to train them up on all this time? so that you know that I am the Lord your God, right? And so here, I think he, he's trying to make a, a very important uh, uh, truth here, is that um, he's saying that you can never know me. God is trying to say that you can never know me until you accept that I can do the unknowable, things that you cannot understand or explain. To know me is not to always understand. You can't always look through the human lens and expect me to behave that way. I'm not constrained that way. I can do anything. And you don't know me until you see me that way. 
whether it's, you know, uh, you can't release me from Egypt. The Egyptians are never going to release me until ten plagues later. You can't save me from the, you know, the, the Pharaoh's army bearing down on me until you close the Red Sea down on them. You're not going to find water in the desert until you treat it with throwing a tree in it. And you can't feed me you know, until you put manna on the ground, right? So here we see, and this is constantly the case, that the Israelites are putting you know, God in a box and trying to put him on a shelf, that you can't operate outside my human understanding. Are we the same way? Do we try to put God in a box? Maybe we need to let him out. He may need to produce a little bit of manna in our lives. Or, you know, it, it, it may be as simple as something you never saw coming, like retirement. So, be careful. Be careful. If you're complaining, God's probably trying to test you. Don't complain. Reach out to him. And don't try to constrain him. So, so far we've been, uh, you know, focused on, our attention's been focused on God's testing of the people, Right? Basically, the idea is, is testing them. Will they trust me to be their sustainer when they're out here in the desert without any food? And of course, they're afraid. I can understand that. But will they call out to me and look to me and say, God, help me, as Moses did before with the water, or are they just going to grumble against me? And that we've, we've seen that. But now God goes the next step. He's going to test them in another way. And we see that in verse 4, if you, if you caught on to that, so that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So now it's a little different. Now he's, give, he's going to give some specific instructions that he's also going to use to test the people. So let's see what that looks like. <clears throat> so picking up in verse 16. <clears throat> You shall not put the Lord, let's see here, no, that is not the right place. I didn't think that was. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece uh, according to the number of persons in, uh, you have in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and, left, and some left part of it until morning. And it bred worms, and it became foul, and Moses was angry with them. And they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now it came about on the sixth day when they gathered twice as much bread, two lomers for each one, when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake uh, what you shall bake and boil what you will boil, and all of it, and, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor were there any worm in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath. To the Lord, today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came, out, came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instruction? 
See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place so that man, no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put it in uh, an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Cana. Now, Omer is a tenth of an epa. <clears throat> okay, so here we see God issuing some commands now that he, he's provided the food, and now there are some commands. And these commands are largely around how they are to gather that food that he has provided for them. And so we kind of see a new paradigm, a new uh, dawning here in a sense that uh, this is the first time we see God giving the people actual day-to-day -day commands, right? And we have not, you know, we've not gotten to Sinai when the full law is given yet yet, but now he's still giving some basic commands to get them there, right? And so uh, they would have known some commands when they were under the, the Egyptians, right? I'm sure they had all kinds of very, you know, hard rules and commands that they were having to live to even then, but this is the first time we see God giving commands. And again, from verse 4, we know why God is giving them these commands. They, he, again, is is testing them or or training them, or, or disciplining them, right? He's trying to get them to understand that I am your sustainer. And so, actually, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 5 really, uh, really get at what God's full intention here with these, uh, <clears throat> these uh, commands and really what it means to us today. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. So here we see, you know, Again, God is trying to train up. He's testing. He's training his people. What does he want? In this training, he wants them to know him. If you keep my commandments, you know me. If you know me, you keep my commandments. But as this, this process goes on, what happens? You become my love. God's love in us is perfected in us. And we become, he becomes in us. And so we see this transformation occurring. We begin to look more and more like God. And His love supersedes our own wants and grumblings and desires, and it becomes more and more like Him. And so that's, that's where we want to go. That's where we want to see things happening. And that's, that's basically what God is trying to train them in here. So before we dig into the kind of the specifics of each of these little commands, I, it, it's also important to recognize that <clears throat> this manna, this bread from heaven, is but a shadow, a foretaste 
of the perfect, the better bread from heaven, the bread of life that we read of in, in John 6, 48 through 51. So, let's see, 6, 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we see that this bread, this, this perfect bread, this bread of life came down out of heaven. That's Christ, God incarnate. And this bread was his body, which was broken on the cross for uh, as, as to pay the debt of, the sin, of our sins. And if we follow God's command, if we eat of this bread, we shall never die. And so, you know, of course, this is all about Christ and our relationship with him. So now what I want to do is kind of marry these ideas, that of this foretaste of the manna with the perfect bread of life. And now to actually look at each of these commands and kind of think of them in the context of both the physical manna and what it meant to the people and the spiritual manna, the, uh, the bread of life that Christ represents to us in our lives today. Okay, you follow what I want to try to do here. Marry these two concepts and see what God's really trying to tell us today as we conduct our lives. So this first command uh, that we see is uh, in verse 16, and it's that uh, to gather of it every man as much as he should eat. So go out and gather the, the, the manna. And so what is the purpose of this command? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Instruct the people to go out and take hold of this gift that I've given them and so that uh, you won't starve to death. Go out and gather it. So why would such a command even be needed, right? Why would they need to be told to go out and gather it? Well, I think the COVID vaccine kind of provides us a little bit of a corollary here, and I'm not saying anything about the COVID, whether you've, you've got the shot or not, but it, it kind of helps us to understand where the, some of their hesitancy might be. I mean, think about this manna. It's something they've never seen. It's not natural in the sense it's, you know, that I went and harvested some wheat and made it into bread or you know, I went and killed the calf and you know, you know, cooked the meat. It's not like what I'm used to. It's, I find it on the ground. I don't really know what it is, right? And it's kind of the same thing with the vaccine. You know, it's this bottle of a liquid and I don't know what's in it. A bunch of chemicals and you know, who knows what it is, right? And then I've got to trust that, uh, you know, can I really trust God to go and take this and take it into my body or put it in the body of my kids or my pregnant wife? So, you know, do I really trust him? In the same way with, you know, the vaccine, do I really trust the government or, you know, science or the doctors that are in injecting me? So you can kind of see where some of their hesitancy might be is, you know, I've never seen this before. Can I really eat this? Should I eat it? Maybe I'll let someone else try it, you know, before me, right? But the whole idea here is that, uh, you know, they had to get over this. So what is the command intended to teach the people? Well, 
It's to trust Him ultimately, right? All these commands are ultimately about trusting in God. You can trust me explicitly. I only have what is best for you in mind. And that's what he's trying to get across here to them. But also specifically, this specific uh, command to go out and gather, what else might that he be trying to teach them? Is that they have to work a little bit. Yes, I'm providing the food, but you at least have to go out and gather it and prepare it and eat it if you're, you know, for you not to go hungry. So he's teaching them that they have to you know, put a little skin in the game here, if you will. So how does this apply to the bread of life, right, and us today? And so I think you probably follow this pretty quickly is uh, that uh, we too much must reach out for the perfect gift of God. While that gift is freely given, we still have to reach out and accept it in some way. Uh, we have to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Have you made that choice? Have you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Or are you just going to let that manna sit and rot on the ground and you starve to death? That's the question we're faced with today. Then we see the next concern. <clears throat> this is how we are to gather that manna, right? Verse 16, they should gather an omer full for each person in their tent or in their family, which is about a cup full. Um, they're also, in verse 19, not to keep any of the manna overnight, right? Or it'll grow worms. So what is the purpose of this command? Well, it instructs them on how much was needed for, you know, health, right? How much do I really need uh, to eat and how much uh, to keep us healthy? Why is this command needed? Well, <clears throat> again, uh, obviously it teaches them to trust in God, again, that you can trust me each day to wake up and find food. Every day, I'm not going to skip. I'm not going to miss a day. Every day, I'm going to have food for you. You can trust me to provide that food for you. Even beyond that, he's also, you know, specifically about the way they gather the food, right? He's also trying to teach them something else. He's trying to teach them that uh, uh, there is nothing that they can do physically to take care of their food insecurity, right? You can't binge on this. I can't eat enough that so if God forgets tomorrow, I'm full enough that I'll be fine. Or um, I can't gather it up and, you know, gather a little extra every day and put it in a big jar so that if God quits feeding me, I've got this big store of, of, of manna that I, you're going to take care of me. No, God's saying each and every day you have to trust in me and you can't do anything about it yourself, right? It's all about me and all about me sustaining you. So um, how does this apply to the bread of life? Okay, and I think, again, very obviously how it applies to Christ in our lives today is that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Our works are never good enough. No matter you know, how we do it, we're completely and utterly dependent on the blood of Jesus Christ. And have you turned that over to him? Have you trusted him fully? Or are you still trying to do works to earn your way to salvation? It will never work. Just like the manna in the desert, it will grow worms and rot. So you can only depend on Jesus Christ for your salvation and on God's grace. The next command comes, and it deals with the Sabbath. As we read in verses 22 through 30, there they're able to gather a double, per, double portion on Friday, the sixth day, 
So, and to also prepare it, whether they're going to bake it or boil it, however they want to eat it on, on Saturday, on the Sabbath day, they need to get it prepared. So they don't have to gather it, they don't have to prepare it. It's all ready for them on the Sabbath day. So uh, that, you know, basically was what the, the, the command was about. <clears throat> so what was the purpose? Well, interestingly here, this is the first mention of the Sabbath. Um, and we haven't been given the law yet, right? We haven't made it to Sinai. So this is some, some commands God has given them up front before they, they get the full law. And one of, the ones, one of the things he wants to institute immediately is this idea of the Sabbath. And that, of course, we know follows from his, his resting from his creative process on the seventh day. And so here he's establishing a similar uh, uh, approach to having a day of rest after six days of work. And so, uh, and again, the whole idea about, you know, the rest, not only is it for, you know, their physical well-being, but more importantly, it's about worship and about a day of family that they can take a break from their work to really focus in on these important things. So why is this command needed? Well, they would not have known a day of rest, right? They, you know, as, as slaves, they would have worked seven days a week, 365 days a year. They never would have got a break. So this was something new to them. God had to kind of prepare, you know, get them to thinking in this way. But relative to the rules of gathering, it was also to teach them what? To prepare for that day of rest that, you know, they couldn't just, you know, stumble up to it and then, you know, rest. They had to prepare themselves for it. So what is it intended, this command intended to teach them? Again, it builds trust in God, right? That they can trust God, that we can take a day off as you instruct us, and you're still going to provide for us. And so I can trust you to provide even when I'm taking a day off as you instruct me. Also, I think it, again, uh, in terms of the way they're collecting, it is a way of teaching them also to prepare right, for that Sabbath day. Just as we need to prepare, you know, before Sunday, don't just show up at church, but really prepare yourself, get yourself ready for that day of rest, for that day of worship. And so he's trying to uh, bring, you know, teach them this. So now in today, how does that apply to us as the bread of life? What command, if you will, that we have here in Matthew eleven twenty eight? tells us, come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is found in Christ that resting is found in Christ, and it's only in him. And what, what has he given us rest from? It's our sin and our shame that he's giving us that rest from. It's only in Christ that our sins are forgiven and that we break that chain, uh, that slavery to sin. So have you allowed Christ, have you put your sin and your shame on him? Have you found that resting that is found only in him? And on the corollary, do you prepare yourself as you come before him to worship him? Have you prepared yourself for that worship? Whether it's, you know, in, in the sense of gathering and, 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 and preparing the food ahead of time, are you doing the same to prepare yourself to come before Christ as we worship him? So the final command that we see here is in verse 32. And this is for them to keep an omer full for all generations, to take an omer full of, of, of manna and save it. And so 
what would this command be for? Why would they want to do that? And so it's to serve as a remembrance, right, for how God had preserved and sustained them in the desert in these miraculous ways. It's to remind the people of what God had done in a very powerful, miraculous way. So why, though, did he choose manna of all the things of, you know, the ended up in the, the Ark of the Covenant? You know, manna was one of the few things. Why is that so significant? And I think if you think about all the miracles, you know, there were all the plagues and, you know, the, the Red Sea parting and, you know, the water and the manna and the, the, all kinds of military exploits and whatever that went on. Those are all kind of hard to put in a jar, aren't they? But think about the manna. It is something that you could save, and it, it's unique. It's not human-like that anything that they, you know, was thought of as food up until that time, right? So it had this unique signature. So it was a tangible symbol of everything that they had ever uh, encountered as far as, you know, experience with God's deliverance and sustenance. So that manna was something pretty special in that sense, that it would immediately evoke a remembrance of this very special event uh, that uh, God had brought these people through uh, and sustained them. And so why is this kind of command needed? Well, future generations who did not experience the ex exodus uh, need to have you know, a tangible reminder of God's sustenance and God's deliverance through these difficult times. And it's something that, you know, they can take courage in, in. And why, and then what is it intended to teach? I think it's those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? In other words, your forefathers failed and failed and failed. Here, look at this, remember it, take it to heart so you don't fail, that you trust that God is your sustainer, right? And then finally, how does this apply today through the bread of life in our lives? And so we, too, we weren't physically present, right, in the time of Christ. We didn't see him. We didn't see him die uh, on, on the, the cross. And so how are we expected to remember this event? Well, we celebrate communion. We just celebrated communion. And the bread we break together, the cracker, it represents the broken body of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-24. So... We do this that all generations will remember, right? And thank God, because we are that generation. This is how we remember. I mean, this is a very important symbol of something very spiritually deep and important to us. And so in the same way, the manna, we see the bread of life reminding us of this amazing miracle that God has done on our behalf. So that's the lesson. Just a couple of things, again, just to reiterate that I want you to take away from this lesson this morning. The first thing is that, again, we've seen God testing his people in different ways. In the first, we saw where he was just testing to see how will they respond to this difficult situation. Will they reach out to me as Moses did with the, the water, or are they going to grumble against me? And whether ultimately he's trying to train them in terms of to know me as your sustainer and also to realize that you're not always going that you don't have to look at how I might uh, solve your your problem through you know human lens but rather I have all kinds of things at my disposal I am uniquely able to sustain you and to 
to, uh, you know, to know God is to not always understand His ways. The second thing is, again, is how God has given them some commands uh, to test them, to, again, to train them. And God, in the same way, has given us commands to train us up. Again, with the same purpose, to know Him, right? And through the bread of life, through Jesus Christ, we have those commands to take hold of Him, to trust only in Him for our salvation, to rest in Him and to remember Him through the bread. But in doing that, as we follow His commands, we know Him better. As we know Him better, we follow His commands better. It's this reinforcing loop that ultimately helps us to uh, you know, truly uh, reflect the love of God and for us to embody God. He is in us. So exactly where we want to be. So if you'll stand, I'll close this out in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for uh, this passage, Lord. Thank you for this time to study your word together, Lord, for uh, just reminding us, Lord, that uh, uh, when we are faced with difficult situations, Lord, that uh, uh, you are much more powerful, that we, we shouldn't look at these situations through uh, the human lens, but, Lord, that uh, you are so much more capable than we, Lord, that... Uh, uh, that we should understand that we won't always understand your ways, Lord, and just to have blind faith in you, Lord. Also, Lord, help us uh, to go and, 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 and to learn you more as we keep your day-to-day -day commands, as we just live for you, Lord, that uh, you, your love in us would be perfected, and, Lord, that you would come more and more to live in us, Lord, that we would reflect your beauty. Go with us this week, Lord. Thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.